This is The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Harbaugh. The Word sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The Word to Stand On for Life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the Word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the Tuesday Show. Thank you for joining me. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and this is The Word to Stand On for Life. It's a program that's dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions and life questions, questions about our faith, what we believe and why we believe it. Whatever's on your heart, I will do the best that I can. All you have to do is call us. You can dial 210-340-9585. That's 340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. Numerically, it's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com. Or you can use our free Calvary Chapel mobile app and send your questions to us that way. If you are driving in your car, by far the safest way to call is to use the hands-free feature of your phone and the KSLR, the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the Call Now banner at the top of the screen, and you'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Our main number one more time is 340-9585. I don't have a bunch of stuff to talk about today. It's a Tuesday, so I'll get right to the questions while we await your phone calls. This one is from Gina. She says... How can I overcome my fear of sharing my faith with others? Gina, I'm really thrilled that you had the courage to ask that question because it demonstrates a couple of things. First, it demonstrates that the Holy Spirit is working in you and on you. Uh, It's something he wants to do. Uh, Paul wrote to his uh, pastor friend Philemon in the sixth verse of that one, uh, one paragraph or one chapter treasure. He said to, uh, to Philemon, I pray that you are active in sharing your faith so that you'll have a full understanding of every good thing that we have in Christ. So the idea, Gina, is simply to, to understand that this treasure that we have is so valuable that we can't keep it to ourselves. Paul, writing to the Romans, he said that he is a debtor, both to Greek and to Jew. And what he's saying is, look, I can't help but to tell people about this glorious gospel. It's my duty. It's my responsibility. It's a debt that I carry around. And obviously the Apostle Paul was one who shared his faith uh, everywhere he went. So recognizing that you need to do it is really the important first step. Now, how do you do it? Well, I'm going to suggest a couple of things, and then perhaps I'll, I'll shock you a little bit. Um, But the first thing you have to do is simply understand that you have no choice. I I was talking to our church not long ago, uh, Gina, and I I just, I said to the people, I said, you know, I I don't understand 
why it is that we Christians, we call Jesus Lord, why it is that we Christians think we have a choice of saying no. When God says to do something, then it's our responsibility to do it. I think we've simply got to be willing, acknowledging that he's the Lord in our lives, he's in charge. We've got to be willing to do it no matter how it makes us feel. No matter whether we're afraid or not, no matter whether we're going through good times or bad times, none of that makes any difference. We simply have to be willing to share. So, Gina, that's the first step. The second step is asking for God's power. You know, every day when uh, the little kids are in here praying for the program, there's always a couple of them. Today it was Zechariah, and he said, he said, Pastor Ronnie, have you got a question? And they like to look at the questions that I have on my screen so that they can give an answer. And I said, uh, okay, we'll take Gina's question. And he read it, and he goes, well, I would think that you just really have to ask God for help. Gene, he's a third grader. And that really is how we have to do it. Lord, I'm uncomfortable doing this. I'm afraid of being rejected. I'm afraid of somebody saying something uh, that is going to offend me. But I'm going to do it. Not by might nor by power, but by your spirit. And I always add, in your name and for your glory. So, Gina, this is just something that the Lord is working on your heart. You've got to be willing to do it and share your faith. Now, here's the thing I said that might shock you. A lot of times, people sort of back away from sharing their faith because they think, well, I don't know enough and I don't have to answer the questions. You don't have to. Here's what you do. You tell them what God has done for you. Now, that's not my permission not to read, not to study, not to know what you're talking about. But you've got to recognize that there's one expert in this world about your life, and that's you. So let him know what Jesus has done for you. And here's what's going to happen, Gina. The Holy Spirit is going to come upon you in power. And you're going to realize that you know stuff you didn't even think you knew. Every time we step out in obedience, Acts 5.32, every time we step out in obedience, it's like this, this tidal wave of power from heaven comes. God will help you demonstrate gifts of the Spirit. When you're talking to somebody who doesn't know the Lord, He'll give you words of wisdom, words of knowledge. And all because you've taken that step of faith. God always honors that step of faith. So it's something you've got to do. And it doesn't matter whether you're afraid or not. Paula has a saying she tells the ladies here all the time. She says, I know you're scared, but do it scared. And it's just a matter of disciplining yourself. Now let me give you a practical suggestion. And Gina, this works for me wonderfully. You know, I'm not one of those guys. Paula can say things to people that, that I, if I said them, I'd get punched. Paula says them, and people love them, and they laugh, and, and, and then they open their hearts to her. Uh, I'm not that kind of guy. I'm not the, the guy that walks into a dark room and lights it up. But I look at the people. I'm a student of people. And I'm always looking for an opportunity to share. I've been praying, asking the Lord to open doors. Door, Lord, you know who I'm going to meet today. You know who needs to hear about you. 
So direct my steps and put me in those places. But I don't just sit and wait. I actively do things. And I'll use everyday things. Somebody has a hat or a t-shirt. I'm visually impaired, so sometimes it looks kind of creepy when I do it. But I stare at people because I want to look at their, what does their hat say, Paula? Or what does their their t-shirt say? Because that's going to give me an opening to talk to them. I'll look at license plate frames if I'm out where people are by their cars. Uh, I'll look at bumper stickers. I'll look at anything because I'm looking for an opening to be able to share. We go into restaurants, Gina, and especially the restaurant we go to all the time. People know us, so you know we're hugging people when we walk in. And, and uh, I'll look at people that I don't know sitting there eating, and I'll look and see what they've ordered, and I'll ask them a question like, Ooh, I was thinking about ordering that. Is that good? And they'll start talking. Or I'll look at uh, a husband and a wife. And I'll say something like, Boy, you have good taste. And they'll laugh and agree with me. And then we get the opportunity to talk. Just this past week, Paul and I were in in that, that restaurant. And there was, actually it wasn't that restaurant, it was another one. It was the day that restaurant was closed, so it was one of the holidays. And um, there was a, a, a family sitting right behind us. And as soon as they sat down, two kids, mom, husband, as soon as they sat down, the Lord just sort of spoke to my heart and said, them, talk to them. And I didn't know how to do it. I mean, they were behind us, not next to us, so we could carry on a conversation. So when they, we got up to pay, actually, they were still sitting there. And I started a conversation about, I said, you guys are, you look like you really belong together, or something along those lines. And he said, um, well, we've been together for 21 years, and, and uh, I said, so you're married for 20? Oh, no, we've been together for 21 years. And I had an opportunity to share. Paula started to share. And when they said 21 years, all I had to say is, oh, next month it'll be 50 years for me and Paula together. And, and here's what he asked me. He said, 50 years? What's the secret? And all I had to say was one word, Jesus. And the floodgates opened. So, Gina, you just have to do it. Um, it doesn't mean you'll be comfortable doing it, but it means that God will be really pleased. And when you do something that you're not comfortable doing, imagine how pleased God is. It's easy to do something that's easy to do, but, but the Lord says, I want you to do this for me. And think about that smile of Jesus that works for me. Good question, Gina. Thank you very, very much. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. Let's go to Jeff on line one from San Antonio. Jeff, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hi, Pastor. Just want to send a high five to Paula for that really tough lesson uh, in Judges last night. She got through it. Praise <laughs> God. I mean, uh, the All first right. like ten minutes, she seemed she seemed kind of nervous about it, but she started. She started doing Mama Paula about midway through, man. She she was about not ready to stop. So it, that was a really that's a really tough one. Really tough. 
Yeah, you know, Jeff, there's so much about that passage of Scripture that's hard to teach because, one, it's, it's way out of chronological order. It doesn't belong there. It's, it, it's sort of a look into the, the filth in the hearts of the people uh, when they were doing what seemed right to them, and it goes back into time in things that you've already studied and, and, and passages you've already studied. And I can tell you, when Paula got home, the one emotion that I can, I can clearly declare is that she was so relieved. She even mentioned to me this morning, she's at the gym on the stair stepper, and, and she goes, Ron, I'm done with judges. So that's why she did so much. But thank you for letting me know that she did well. I'm sure she'll be happy to hear that. Yeah, and, and the comment I had already prepared is like, you're just going to keep talking about what you were just talking about in your first question. And that's really, you know, I know, I know in general our culture believes now that truth is, is personal and subjective. So my, my question to you, it's not really a question because you've answered this many times before, but it's just another way of getting at it. It's like, so if a person doesn't believe that the Bible is true, how can we convince them that Jesus is the only way to heaven? Because not even John fourteen six, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, is going to be persuasive enough for them any more than a Muslim who's quoting the Quran is going to persuade mm-hmm. you or me to become Muslim. So what you were already saying is probably our strongest argument for the Bible is our own personal testimonies and how Jesus makes a difference in our personal lives, like right now, above and beyond any scripture. It's going to be that testimony of, of, of what he's doing in your life right now. That's what I'm thinking yeah. of. So keep going where you were. I appreciate it. You know, when, when people, and I get this all the time, well, I don't believe that the Bible is the Word of God. And I, I, I always tell them, I said, well, you know, the fact that you don't believe it's true doesn't mean it's not. And I want to challenge them right at the beginning. This whole cultural concept we have of my truth and your truth, and everybody has to find their truth. I said, truth that isn't true has no value except the power to destroy. And so what I tell people all the time, Jeff, is that just because you don't believe it's true doesn't mean it isn't true. And the most important thing you can do is be honest in them, not just to repeat what everybody else says. And that's exactly what unbelievers do. They just regurgitate these old, tired arguments. Just tell them, find out for yourself. Because heaven or hell depends on what you discover. And I tr- what I'm trying to do is get them to, to admit to me that they really don't care enough to dig in and find out for themselves. And that will give me an opportunity to talk to them. But, Jeff, honestly, the, the, the world that we live in now that accepts nothing is truth except what we consider true as individuals, uh, you can hear the hiss of the devil in that. It's just the way it is. And so uh, I, that's, that's what I would do, and, and um, I think we, we've got to challenge people. The other thing I will tell somebody is, look, when you make a statement like that, it's clear to me that you've never read it. And I'll say, they'll say something like, well, I've read the Bible. I said, okay, well, when did you read it and what did you read? How far did you get through it? Well, until they were, there were contradictions, I found the contradiction, well, name one. And they can't. And so I'm just going to put them on the defensive a little bit in a situation like that, because what I want them to understand, Jeff, is that they've got to deal with the truth that I know. They're not digging in. They're not honestly looking. 
And I want to know that the stakes are that high. Thanks, Jeff. I appreciate the call. Let's go to uh, Seguin and talk with our friend Ruben online, too. Ruben, thanks for calling. You're on the air. God bless Pastor Ron. Thank you for taking my call today. Just two quick thanks, things. Um, I, I need some clarification, some very, very distinct clarification on sin and our forgiveness of sins. Um, we're... Where Paul talks about what what I want to do, I don't do, and the things that I do, I don't want to do. Um, uh, where is that found? And then, do you have a teaching on it that I could go back and maybe look uh, online if you have a teaching on it to see what you had to say on that? But as far as uh, uh, sin, I was a friend of mine had told me who's a. He's a mentor. He used to be a pastor, but now he he stepped down. He's he's up there in age. But he told me he says, "Look, uh, Ruben, when Jesus died, he came and he died for all of our sins, past, present, and future." I said, "Okay, I understand that, but not that not that I'm willingly sinning, but with the issue that I have, and you know what I'm talking about." It's like, I don't want to do it. Like Paul says, it's like the things that I do, I don't want to do. And the things that I don't want to do, that's what I end up doing. So I need clarification on that. Like, um, because I don't, I don't want to be a hypocrite and not that I do it. Uh, um, because I, I strongly hold on to Romans chapter, oh God, which is it? Six, I think verse one, Mm -hmm. it says, what then shall we continue to sin because God's grace abounds? And, and I don't, I don't. I don't want to do that. So I need like clarification. Like, are all of my sins forgiven, past, present, and future? And if I do sin, is that sin forgiven as well? And then uh, uh, I forgot the second thing. I guess this is the only thing that God really wanted me to focus on because I forgot the other. Thank, one. thank you, Ruben. I can do that and and um, um, be very very pay pay attention because I think. Um, the, I know I'm going to be really, really clear, and I think the Lord wants to use this to, to sort of give you um, a sense of, of assurance. Not assurance in your sin, but assurance in his salvation. A couple of things. Uh, Romans chapter 7 is where you find uh, the Apostle Paul. It's, it's, it's one of the autobiographical statements that he makes. What I want to do, I can't do. What I don't want to do, that's what I find myself doing. Oh, wretched man that I am, who can deliver me from this body of death? And then he has the answer. It's almost like Jesus is riding in on a white horse. And he says, I thank my God through Jesus Christ. In other words, he is the rescuer. It's Romans chapter 7, um, uh, start around verse 20. And um, um, I think in my study in Romans 7, it would be uh, toward the, the, the end of, it would be the last study probably in Romans chapter 7. And I spent a long time on that with our church, Reuben. So I think that will help you and give you some clarity. Now, a couple of things. It is true that we are forgiven of all of our sins, past, present, and future. What you have to do is understand the difference between justification and sanctification. You see, justification is God dealing with your sin once for all. And because by faith you believed, you asked Jesus in your heart, you were born again, you are, and here's a way to remember it, and I don't like trite things, but but this is easy to remember, justified means just as if I'd never sinned. 
And that means your past is wiped out, your present is wiped out, and your future sins are wiped out. So positionally, we stand before God perfect. Reuben, one of the things that that we, we should never forget is that when God looks at you, he looks at you through what I call the Jesus filter. And all he sees is perfection and beauty. All beautiful you are, my darling. There's no flaw in you, Solomon says to the Shulamite in the Song of Songs. Well, that's Jesus speaking to you. And because you're beautiful, because there's no flaw, well, then naturally we want to live up to that. Well, that's the process of sanctification. And sanctification means the process day by day. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. He didn't say work for it. He says work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And so what you do is you understand that every day you want to be more like Jesus. You need to understand that apart from him, you're going to sin continually. You have to realize that when you make a choice to sin willfully, now you know it's wrong, but you do it anyway. It's, it's that I don't want to do it, but I find myself doing it. Well, one, you don't have to do that. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13 is a promise, a very straightforward promise, that God will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. In other words, you don't have to say yes to the temptation. You can instead say yes to Jesus. So when you do that, God is pleased, and your fellowship with God is pure. Now, when you sin willfully, when you sin at all, but but especially willfully, um, our fellowship with the Lord is broken because we are dealing with unrepentant sin. Um, We knew it was wrong, but we did it anyway. It doesn't matter if we cry. It doesn't matter if we have big tears, but we do it anyway. And many times we, we plan on doing it again. When we do that, what we're saying is, Jesus, thank you for dying for my sins, but right now I need you to get out of this room so I can do something that you don't want me to do. And you're sacrificing fellowship. Now, as harsh as that sounds, that's why 1 John 1, 9 is so important. If you confess your sins, it's all and only about fellowship. If you confess your sins, he, God, is faithful and just to forgive you and to purify you from all unrighteousness. So when you fall to temptation and your heart hurts and you say, Jesus, I'm so sorry I did it again. I don't want to do it anymore. Then he forgives you and your fellowship is restored. So justification deals with our position before God. Sanctification deals with our day-to-day walk with Jesus. And since we're going to struggle in these flesh and blood bodies, we need to know that he is an eager forgiver. Now, when you mention Romans chapter 6, after talking about sin and righteousness, Paul opens chapter 6, and and it's a bad chapter division there. Uh, He anticipates the argument that we get all the time. Well, if God's forgiven our sins, if they're as far from me as the east is from the west, well, then I might as well keep on sinning. And in the King James, the New King James particularly, what then shall we say? Shall we sin because we're forgiven? And the King James says, God forbid. See, sin has to hurt. Hurt our heart because we're hurting the heart of the Lord. I'm not talking about doing guilt. I'm talking about real conviction. And simply saying, Jesus, I don't want to do it anymore. Please help me. 
And here's the key, Reuben. When you're with Jesus, you're going to say no to temptation. When you're not with Jesus, you're going to say yes. You, me, it doesn't matter. We're all going to fall into sin. We don't have to, but we do. It's what we do afterwards. Now, let me also say this. That you're struggling with this is a really good thing. But I want you to know God wants you to have victory over it. It doesn't mean you won't be tempted. It just means that when that temptation comes, I'd rather be with Jesus. And I may have told you this before, but now when you're being tempted to do something that you know God doesn't want you to do, you pick up your Bible and read it. It's going to be awful hard to give in to that temptation. Good question, Reuben. Thank you for calling. This is the word to stand on for life. We've got 30 minutes left in the program. 340-9585. We'll be back in two minutes. If you have questions about the Bible, you can send them to Pastor Ron and he'll answer them on the air or reply directly to you. Email your questions to PastorRonKSLR at gmail.com. That's PastorRonKSLR at gmail.com. Today's presentation of The Word to Stand On for Life is pre-recorded. No calls will be taken today. What is the word to stand Back to the word to stand on for life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the show. We have 30 minutes left, so if you have a question, call in quickly, 340-9585. Here's a question from Kevin. Pastor Ron, what did Jesus mean when he said his disciples would do greater works than he did. How could anyone do greater miracles than Jesus? Um, Kevin, this is a question that I get frequently, uh, and, and we, we sort of think of, of quality of miracle. Jesus was speaking about the quantity of work that they would do. I want you to think about something. He, he's not saying you're going to raise more people from the dead or you're going to grow back limbs or you're going to uh, heal lepers. He didn't mean that at all. But what he said was, when I'm gone, you're going to do greater things than I did. Well, on the very first day of the church, 3,000 people got saved. Jesus only had 120 people with him in the upper room on the day the church was poured out. 3,000 people, the very first message it was preached, a couple of days go by, another 5,000 men, which means there's a lot more men or, or women and, and children who joined the family as well. So he's talking about quantity. Um, uh, you know, nobody's going to walk on water the way Jesus did. It's very rare that that uh, uh, somebody's raised from the dead. We've got reports uh, always without uh, any validation. Um, but, but, you know, lots of phony miracles people talk about. But Jesus did all of these things, and he did uh, marvelous works. But they pale in comparison to the work that the apostles did. And, by the way, the work that we continue to do. I don't know if you've ever read the book of Acts, Kevin, but if you read Acts chapter 28, the last chapter, it's like the book doesn't really end. It's like you should turn the page and find Acts chapter 29. And, of course, that's a reference to the continuing work that we do. And every day the volume of people that get saved 
after nearly 2,000 years is overwhelming. So that's what Jesus means. He didn't mean you're going to do miracles or you're going to, it wasn't anything about that. The work that you're going to do as the church is going to dwarf anything that you've ever seen me do. And simply by sheer volume of numbers, we know, Kevin, that that was true. So don't think of the spectacular and don't think of the, the quality of the miracle. That's not what he was talking about. But he's talking only about the quantity and the value of such. Thanks for the question, Kevin. Uh, Moses wants to ask me a personal question. Pastor Ron, why don't you teach from the King James Version of the Bible? Um, Kevin, when I, and I have, and my, my first love with the Bible is the King James. I'm sure you've heard me say that in the past. I don't teach from it uh, because, frankly, you spend a lot of your teaching time explaining what it meant. You want to rightly divide the Word of God. You, do, you, you want to be a hard worker. And, and so you, as a communicator, you want people to understand it. I can say that they can be won over without a word. Or I can use the King James word conversation, which means something different now. So I don't teach from it, not because I don't like it. In fact, I do, and most of my Bible memorization comes from the King James. But um, it's just so much easier rather than read the King James and try to explain a verse and then end up saying, well, the Greek says this and then basically quote what the NIV, 1984 NIV, already says uh, is a waste of time. So uh, I want to communicate. I want people to get what I'm teaching. And the King James is difficult it's a word-for-word translation, which I love, but at the same time, it doesn't always translate well. You know, we have a, a Spanish ministry here at the church, and, um, you know, when I'm asking somebody, well, what does this mean? And you find some, my, my messages are translated in Spanish every week, uh, and, and we've traveled um, into Mexico and other places where I've preached with an interpreter. And uh, I, I, I'm always telling the interpreter what I'm going to say in advance, especially with, with figures of speech, so that they can have time to figure it out that we, we want his audience to understand. So that's the same thing we're doing with the 1984 NIV that we use here or any of the other translations. Um, let me say this too, Moses, and, and, and this is just a general warning for everybody. You know, uh, the, the 1984 version of the NIV is not available. Um, it was very, very difficult to find. Um, it was certainly not available on any of our electronics. And uh, my eyes are getting worse. And um, um, it's a little bit easier for me to read with my, I, I call them goggles, but uh, huge magnifiers that I wear. It's a little easier to read on my iPad than it is in the, 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 the Bible with pages. I was just telling Paula this. We took a trip today, and I was just telling her that um, I was reading the, the the NIV on the iPad, but it was the 2011 version rather than the, the 1984 version. And I just, poor Jesus, I just grumbled to him the whole time about it. I just, it doesn't say that. That's not what it means. Remember, we want to communicate with people. We want them to get it. And... Um, 
we just don't speak King James English anymore. So, Moses, I hope that is understandable. Stephen asks a really good question. Why will there be animal sacrifices in the millennium? Uh, Stephen, uh, they're going to be done, the, the animal sacrifices. Remember, Jesus will be ruling and reigning. And we would think, well, he died. Why would there be any other sacrifices? Well, when God gave, and, and remember, the millennium is in large part about reestablishing Jerusalem and Israel. And so when those Jews before the cross of Christ offered sacrifices to God for their sins, they did it looking forward to the sacrifice that Jesus would make on the cross. We do it, obviously the cross is a historical event, and so we do it looking backwards. Well, in the millennium, when Jesus is ruling and reigning, those animal sacrifices are going to be uh, utilized as a memorial. It's going to be Jesus saying, it was always supposed to be like this. It'll be constant education, but at the same time, um, this is what the sacrifice pointed to. You thought your sins were being covered over, but I'm the real Lamb of God. And so they'll be done by Jews as a memorial in the temple during the millennium. So Stephen, that's the answer to the question. Here is, let me see, we've got a question from Lee. Um, He says, I was at a church where the pastor said if we weren't tithing, we didn't belong at that church. How do I respond, and where do I find that response in the Bible? Um, Lee, uh, 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 let me apologize. Um, I, I hate it when I get reports like this where the pastor said, you know, you're not real believers if you're not tithing. God won't bless you if you're not tithing. There is no tithe in concept at all in the New Testament. Tithe was required for Israel. Israel was under the law. A tithe means a tenth. So if I was in the church and the pastor said if I wasn't tithing and we didn't belong at that church, then I would leave. I, I really would. I'd find another church that would teach the Bible. Now, let me. I want to be clear. We should give. Second Corinthians, um, chapters eight and nine. Talk about giving with with a with a, a, a cheerful heart, a literally hilarious heart. Giving, because we understand that everything we have belongs to God. And if a tenth was required under the law, how much more should we who are under grace give? But not because we have to, but give because we can't help but to give. And Lee, here's the best thing I can say to you. When you get a paycheck, you realize that every penny of that paycheck doesn't belong to you, it belongs to him. And here's what you do. You say, Jesus, I'm so grateful for what you did. I'm grateful that you provided for my family. How much of your money do you want me to give to the church? Now, make no mistake, Christians ought to be giving to their home church over and above anything else. That's the work of God that they've been called by God to support. 
It takes a lot of money to run a church. You want to be sure that your church is being uh, responsible with the money, that they're being obedient with your offerings, that they're not wasting it, or it's not a, uh, meant to build a, a shrine or a monument to the man who's leading the church. But here's what I believe will happen, Lee, when you offer everything to God. And you say, you've given everything for me. How can I hold anything back from you? I think what Jesus is going to do is say, Lee, why don't you just keep that money this week? Maybe next week we'll do something else, but just keep it. Maybe if you've got some debt, the Lord will say, here's what I want you to do with my money. I want you to retire that debt so you can be free to serve me. Most often... He'll give you an amount to put with a joyful heart in the offering. But we're not, Second Corinthians says, to give under compulsion. We're not to be guilted into it. And I had a question late last week about um, this is the time of year that one person's church always does a series on giving for the entire month of January. And, and he says, I feel so uncomfortable. I've heard it all. And they're just trying to take offering after offering. Um, that It should never be done that way in a New Testament church. And I'll also say this, Lee. There are a lot of people who uh, teach good pastors, good men, who teach tithing. Um, they're wrong. Uh, I believe their heart is right. Uh, I believe it helps them be good stewards of the money that comes in. Uh, I think that it helps budgeting. But I can tell you in 24 and a half years, we've never asked for one dime. We've never passed an offering plate, box, bucket, or hat. And the Lord has turned our people into very generous people. And we do things a church our size should never be able to do. Because we want people asking God what to do with his money. And he's been very, very generous with us for a long time. So tithing is not a New Testament principle. Somebody tries to make you feel guilty because you don't. They don't really understand the Bible. They're not teaching it accurately. I know that response people say well tithing was before the law Abraham that was a pattern and then Moses came with the tithe um, Jesus said the old is gone and the new has come there's just too many pastors Lee who are having a hard time with their own faith trusting God I'll mention this again we listen to you're, you're listening to Christian radio and as you listen to teaching programs we have a teaching program that's on on two stations here in town on twice a day. And we never ask for a dime. We don't spend one minute of, uh, of our airtime trying to sell things. If you listen to almost every other radio show, they take valuable time teaching the Word and turn it into an advertisement for giving. And I think it's a, a, a spiritual tragedy. And, and I'm not being uh, hyperbolic with that. It, it's, it's we who should trust God the most don't. So I'd find new church. That would be just my response, Lee. Sorry you're going through that. I apologize on behalf of the Lord. 
340-9585. Here's a question that came into our email inbox anonymously. Hello, Pastor Ron. My brother is not a believer. He's searching, but in all the wrong places. That's always true, anonymous. He continues, we were having a biblical discussion one day, and he said, how can heaven be this wonderful place if the whole time you're remembering your friends and family who are being eternally punished in hell? I'd always thought the answer was, we won't remember many aspects of this life, but I'm thinking now that might not be a right biblical response. It seems we would have to remember certain aspects of this life to understand how we got to heaven in the first place. What is the biblical way we should understand this question? Will we remember every part of this life, even our friends and family who didn't make it? And how will that affect our peace and joy in heaven? God bless you. Anonymous, thanks for the question. Um, Two things. Let me just say that, that heaven is a whole new order of things. I always call it a brain swipe. God is going to give us a brain swipe. They're going to be in heaven. No, no more sorrow. No more tears. Um, we're not going to ask questions. Why, God? We're, we're not going to be reminded of, of the, the, the pain that we experience in a fallen world. It is a whole new order of things. And we need to understand that. Now, we won't also have to remember how we got to heaven in the first place because he will be standing there in front of us for eternity. You see, now we know in part. Then we'll know as we are known by God. We'll know fully. And I think what we try to do in a question like this, Anonymous, is we try to to um, think uh, sort of, sort of uh, linear thinking and we think only from a human perspective. And what we need to understand is heaven is a completely new perspective. Imagine Jesus, who is the just judge of the earth. Every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of the glory of God the Father. Every knee and every tongue. Is it possible that we're going to look at Jesus and see how hard he tried to keep people from going to hell? And it's a question that will never occur to us because we will be awash in his justice, in his glory. So we're not going to remember people who didn't make it. We're going to be in the presence of the Lord. So that's the way to answer, Anonymous. Tell your brother, stop using excuses for not dealing with Jesus himself, which is exactly what that kind of a question is. Let's go to David calling from San Antonio on line one. David, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Uh, first of all, blessings on you for 2020, you and your congregation and your home. Thank you, David. Um, you're welcome. Uh, I have a friend that is uh, trying to clasp on to Christianity, to become a Christian. And uh, he was listening to a radio program the other day, and I, I guess it really bugged him, uh, what he heard. And he called and asked me a question, which um, I'm going to you to respond to i know how i would respond to him but i really um i, I really love your your answers you give a lot of insight so um, i think it's a beautiful question because it would it would give uh, lots of time to be able to bring out the character of god answering the question and if we run out of time today i'll listen tomorrow okay the question was um he said if god is so great, so loving, so forgiving, 
so majestic, so, and he went on and on, listed all these things about God. He said, why does God have to have a sacrifice? Why does something have to die for God to be happy? So I would like for you to answer that again. I, I think it's a, it's a beautiful question because it gives you so much platform to just spell out who God is and why. But I'd like your answer. Oh. Thank you, David. You're you're right. It's a it's a it's a great question, and and I'll tell you now. Your friend is very close to the kingdom of God. Uh, tell him to stop asking questions and start receiving answers, and I think it will change his life. Um, why does God need a sacrifice? You see, one of the things that we forget about God, we 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 trumpet His love, and we should we trumpet His grace, and we should we we are overwhelmed. Um, that, that God is 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 good and loving and kind, but we forget about His holiness. God is holy, completely holy, and from the very beginning of time, with with Cain and Abel, it started. Um, actually, before that, it started with Adam and Eve. You remember when they sinned and they were trying to cover their nakedness with fig leaves, which isn't smart. I've got a fig tree in my backyard. They're trying to cover their nakedness, their private parts, with fig leaves. And and uh, God said that's not going to work. And the next time we see them, then they're covering themselves with animal hides, meaning that the first sacrifice happened in the Garden of Eden. They had to cover their nakedness without the shedding of blood. There is no forgiveness of sins. And from the very beginning, all the way throughout history, all the way through our Bibles, David, God wants us to understand that holiness requires justice. And since he said, we at the beginning of Adam, you eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, surely you will die. Well, when we died, then in order to buy us out of death, to have victory over death, then what we had to have was a substitute. And all of the animals in the Old Testament that were sacrificed were a picture of this greater sacrifice to come, the Passover lamb. Jesus was the real Passover lamb. And yet we know from Hebrews... The blood of bulls and goats and rams can't cleanse us of sin. So there had to be a human. But it couldn't be any human. It had to be a perfect human. Since there was no perfect human, God himself became the sacrifice. And he loved you. He loved your friend. He loved me so much, David, that God left heaven allowed himself to be deposited in the womb of a teenage girl, was born into abject poverty, and he was raised for one reason, one reason only, to die. Justice demands an accounting for sin. And God's accounting for sin is blood. And that's why there had to be a sacrifice. You know, it might be easier, David, if we think about this in human terms. 
you know, um, we think of really evil people, Adolf Hitler. was a, well, well, nobody would want God just to be so forgiving and gracious that he said, oh, Adolf, I forgive you. Let's just overlook your sin. Then God wouldn't be just. And if God's not just, if he's not holy, then he's not God. We would be incensed to find out that Adolf Hitler was in heaven without having received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And we know that never happened. So why would we expect God to wink at sin when we won't? So David, that's the answer. God is holy and His holiness has to be satisfied. His holiness demands that blood be shed for blood. And that's exactly what Jesus did. Now, the person who would say, well, that doesn't make sense. Why didn't God just forget it? They, they forget again all about His holiness. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. The angels in heaven aren't saying love, 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 or power, power, power. God's overriding attribute is His holiness. And that's why, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. And that's why Jesus became a man, a perfect man, who died on the cross. Now somebody will say, well, how do we know he was perfect? And this might be a good segue for your friend. Well, because when they put him in a tomb, he didn't stay dead. As was predicted through the prophets, as Jesus said continually before he died, on the third day he will rise again. That's the Father saying, this is my Son. I'm pleased in Him. Listen to Him. And of course, Jesus said He's the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through Him. So David, that's, I think, the approach to take with your friend. Justice demands blood. Unfortunately, God loves us too much to let it be our blood, so He shed His own. Good question. We have how... Well, one minute, so I don't really have time for that. Let me see if I have a very quick question. Um, I'm going to come back to this one tomorrow just very quickly. Danny says, in this age of people being so sensitive to being offended, how do we defend patriarchy in the Bible? Um, David, Danny, we don't expect people to understand. The Bible is an offense. And I'm going to go into more detail on this one tomorrow because I think this is a pretty important question for us to answer. Hey, I appreciate you very much tuning in today. Thank you for the calls. You've been listening to The Word to Stand On for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. Lord willing, I'll be back tomorrow on AM 630 The Word. I'll see you at 4 o'clock. God bless. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio.